Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here, especially you first-time listeners. We hope you subscribe after listening to the episode or just in the middle of listening to the episode or right now. Uh, also, some people may not know, you can support the podcast if you go to thereitispod.com and click on the support tab and it'll take you to a couple of options you can be a patreon or a paypal uh, supporter and a lot of people have chosen to do that through paypal which is great but we do have a patreon page and we have a new patron through that and it's tom housley so big thank you to tom for supporting the podcast tom is a childhood best friend and now he is he's a childhood best friend of the show you know, a lot of shows and podcasts, they have friends of the show, which we have. It's any guest on the show is a friend of the show. But we also have a girlfriend of the show. We have best friends of the show. We have a brother of the show. We have a fraternity brother of the show. And now we have a childhood best friend of the show. So thank you, Tom, for supporting. And if you want to, again, go to the support button on thereitispod.com. Okay, today's guest is a stand-up comic that I met when I was still living in South Carolina, and he's great. And I think we have a really great discussion about comedy and the way people discuss comedy, and then, of course, his career. So let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Carlos Valencia. I met you in the Carolinas, but where are you from originally? Well, I was born in Jersey, but I didn't uh, start doing stand-up till I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And then in between that, I lived in uh, South America for a long time, too. That's My family's from Colombia, South okay. America. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. um, and you've been doing comedy forever. I mean, I've been doing it 10 years, which is crazy. You've been doing it longer <laughs> than that, right? Yeah, I think it was 14 years this year. Wow. Congrats, yeah. man. Well, thank you very much, man. Congrats uh, on the 10. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. It was at the end of July. It was just like, how did 10 years go by? <laughs> yeah, man. After after a while, it becomes one of those things where I kind of with same with my age. I have to like think about it for a second. Like, oh, how long has it been now? Because it's been so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, how did you get into comedy? I... Um, there, back when I started, there was only there was an open mic. There was one open mic in Charlotte, but I didn't, I didn't even know about it. So I just went to the comedy club website, which was the Comedy Zone at that time, and they had they didn't have an open mic, but what they were advertising was a comedy uh, competition. So okay. I uh, I was like, ah, well, I guess this is how you do it. So that's what I did. I. <laughs> signed up for the comedy cup which was like i think the, the first prize was to get a week of gigs on a cruise ship mm -hmm. you know? and you know needless to say i didn't win i still never been on a cruise ship and, <laughs> and now knowing what i know now it would have probably been a horrible idea for me to be on a cruise ship but uh <laughs> i did that and it went okay enough i think what helped me is that the preliminary round that i did 
was all just in front of judges. Mm-hmm. So there was really no audience. It was just a bunch of comics in, in the comedy club. And there was a big, big comedy club. So nobody really was getting that many laughs. So I was just, I, you know, I, I bombed. I didn't get very many laughs, but neither did anybody else. So <laughs> I didn't feel too discouraged to try to do it again. Yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, just with that competition, I mean, did anybody say, when you said this is my first time doing it, was anyone like, uh, what? Why? Oh, oh no, no. I, I, well, I didn't tell anybody. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. I just signed up and went up and, uh, and then I recorded it. I, I don't know the recordings probably somewhere because as far as I knew, that was it was going to be like, hey, I, you know, mm-hmm. I want a little recording of the one time I did stand up comedy. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> it, it was, and actually, a lot of the comics that I saw that that night, uh, I ended up meeting later on, and you know, became friends with me and and all that. But at the time, I had no idea who they were. That's wild. There's yeah, some yeah. timeline where you did win that competition, and you you went on a on a cruise oh like in a in a different <laughs> in, dimension in a different dimension yeah i'd like to in meet a parallel that universe. <laughs> probably has a lot more money than i have <laughs> well uh i hear those cruise ships pay well yeah you know and there if you can handle the the, the swaying then it's uh it could be a good gig oh for sure man like i used to i used to uh uh, because a lot of comics look down on, on working cruise ships, but I mean, yeah. at, at this point, and I was kind of that way too. But at this point, I'd rather still. I mean, if that's going to be your job, telling jokes on a on a ship, that beats most uh, nine to fives. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the reason, or I guess the reason that people are down on cruise ship comics is because so many of them were kind of hacky. But right. in this day and age, that's probably not the case. That, yeah, you might be right. I mean, like I said, I've never been on one, right. but uh, but even if it, even, I mean, if it if, if it is hacky, that it appeals to the people that are going to be on that ship, and that's what the that's what the ship cares about, you know. Yeah, you've got a it job, actually, and yeah. <laughs> you're eating really well and drinking yeah. really well on that cruise ship. You're going to really nice places and shit. Right, five uh, five meals a day, beautiful locale. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't blame anybody for doing the cruise ships. I just, I snap my thing because I don't, I can't. You know, the kind of comedy I do doesn't really appeal to, uh, you know, families and children. Right. <laughs> and that was one of the things I wanted to talk about was how your voice developed. Um, you know, with that kind of comedy that you do. Like, when did you really see what it was and start going for it like how soon in in your 14 years was it i you know i don't i mean they i remember having this conversation with friends of mine when i was starting out and how you it, we would hear a lot like you know it takes you know it says that everybody says it takes 10 years to find your voice and we were like a year and a half in at that point and we're like what the hell man really <laughs> it's gonna it's, i still got nine years to go but you know what it it is kind of true i mean it's not a hard and fast rule it's not gonna be 10 years for absolutely everybody but for right. me i think it was that because it was when i first started out my uh my big comedy hero was uh, Mitch Hedberg. So mm-hmm. I emulated Hedberg a lot. I was telling my own jokes, but I was telling them very much with a Mitch Hedberg cadence and delivery. So that was kind of a knock on me where, you know, the, the jokes were good, but I was not, I, I was basically imitating Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> so I had to grow out of that. And then when I grew out of that, I started doing 
a, you know, some kind of comedy that was a little edgier because it, it was just something that I always I always like uh, darker comedy. Right. But uh, but then I'd had when I started going on the road, uh, you know, a lot of audiences aren't fans of dark comedy. So at that point, I started switching it up because, as far as I knew. If I, you know, if these audiences don't like me, then I might not be able to do stand-up comedy ever again. Mm-hmm. So I actually started for a while there. I was uh, not not necessarily. Uh, I wouldn't call it doing hacky material, but it was material about subjects that were more relatable. Uh, like I started because I was doing a lot of bar gigs. Like I was doing the the you know uh, electric cowboy in Texarkana, you know. Those people usually don't want to hear about ninjas and stuff like that, you know, or political humor. Not that I do very much political humor, but they really want to talk about sex and and drinking and and that sort of thing. So I was like, well, let me see what jokes I have about that. And I would do them. They were still my jokes. And, you know, I still liked them enough. But Mm -hmm. it was I was eventually I got bored because it was just like I I don't want to I get bored with any kind of stand up that just talks about one thing for the whole like, I don't care what it is. It can be any subject, but if it's just one note for the entire thing, I get bored. And eventually, I just got to the point where I'm like, I, this is this is not making me happy. And it was through that process that I eventually just started to be like, well, I just got to be me. If it's too dark, it's just going to have to, I'll just deal with the consequences. Or if it's too dirty or whatever, though, I'm not, I don't really think I'm as much dirty as, uh, as I talk about dark subjects. But... Another part of it, too, is that when you're starting out as an opener, you're not encouraged to do uh, material that might be too edgy or too dirty because mm-hmm. it might uh, the headliner might not be too happy with it, mm-hmm. especially if they, mm-hmm. if they themselves don't do uh, that same kind of humor. Right. So I was very cautious at the beginning. I was very apprehensive about it. I don't want to piss off the booker. I don't want to piss off the headliner. And so I kind of kind of played it safe for a lot of for a long time there but then it just it, it kind of bounced back because i was just not happy with what i was doing i hear that and just to talk about what your voice is as a comic um i it's fair to say that it's kind of counterculture uh or subversive in some way of a lot of like yeah. uh, you know norms in america or the world um mm-hmm. Would it be fair even to say that you're kind of, because I know you opened for Doug Stanhope, um, would it be fair to say your um, your style or brand is uh, in that same kind of camp of Doug Stanhope's uh, world of, you know, like his, the, the, the world of comedy that he is in? Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a fair comparison, except just not as smart and not as funny. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm always thrilled to be, put in that same group because you know doug is probably my favorite comic hmm. but uh but he i think he's got his his bits are very very thought out and very well put together where i'm uh i like i do i do i do do comedy in that vein but i also do like to do silly con- like the like again it's one of those where like i i get bored with comedy that's only one note so right. i enjoy 
of course the edgy comedy but i also like silly comedy and i like absurd comedy and uh-huh. you know I, I never want to become the comic that's too precious to tell a poop joke you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so I, I i i still mix it up in my in my uh comedy in my regular sets but yeah definitely uh i'm more if you're if you're gonna put me in a category i would probably lean more towards that side and then the times that i open for him are just amazing i mean it's probably the the best shows i ever have because the audiences that come to see him are super open-minded like i know yeah. there's nothing i can say that's gonna offend them like right. they're there to see doug stanhope they're not gonna walk away because i just said something that was that you know pushed the line or whatever right uh, and how would you say your look has developed? Because you're you're known as being a comic who has the the guy in the dark clothing in the fedora. Like, was that something that you had early on, or is that something that developed over time? I actually, it's I've had it basically since I started, but it had nothing to do with stand up. It was just always one of those things where it's like, for a long, long time, I I I wanted to have a hat because uh-huh. I liked i was into like frank sinatra and you know that sort of thing mm-hmm. so i was like oh i like that look and but i could never find a hat anyway i didn't know i had never bought a hat in my life so i didn't I mean, now you can seems like you can get them anywhere yeah but, but back then it was I, I couldn't find a place that would have a hat and finally i found one so i started wearing it and i've always worn dark clothes i think it was just because i was big into heavy metal and mm-hmm. when i was in high school i was a big metal head so i always just had dark clothes and then I wear a jacket at this point now. I mean, I used to wear it just because it was, I thought it went well with the hat, but now it's just, it's, there's so many pockets. I love, I love the pockets. <laughs> like now if I don't have a jacket, I was like, where am I going to put my notebook? And there's my phone. And I, I just love having pockets now. It's For so convenient. real. No, like, honestly, like, yeah. you know, it's, that is a, g- a great thing about a, a suit jacket or, or a, a sport coat. Um, because of that, you know, like it's, it has a lot of jack. Whenever I'm like trying to buy a new jacket, like just a not a necessarily a, one for a suit or, or anything like that, just a regular jacket. If it has two only two jackets, and it's like whoever made this shouldn't be in the business of making jacket two pockets well, isn't two enough. Pockets, yeah, no, yeah, you, no gotta, you gotta have four pockets for it to be a good jacket. I, I, yeah, it's one of the best. And sometimes there's the, the they have the little pocket in the on the right. Then yep. you know I don't put little things in there. It's yep. it's the best. Sometimes there's a pocket up front. I can put stuff that I just it started as a as a I guess a fashion thing, but now it's just a convenience thing. Yeah, <laughs> which That's is why also... I hate the summer because it's like in the summer I oh, can't wear gosh. my jackets. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Uh, but also like just like being more into convenience is also I guess a big part of just being older like just the oh, yeah. older you get the more you're just like, <laughs> the more excited you get about the things that are convenient <laughs> oh, oh for sure man i and i like i have i don't know somebody gave me a pair of pajama pants now that has uh it has pockets but they're shallow pockets and it's like torture it's like why would you even do pockets <laughs> that you if i put my phone in there it's gonna fall within two seconds there's no right. my hands can barely go it's, it really is like some kind of psychopath made these <laughs> pajama pants <laughs> well and then you like you hear about the pockets and women's pants and you're like what <laughs> oh yeah dude i didn't even know about that till very recently i'm like yeah. this is 
They have nope, like that's yeah. why that's why uh, women have uh, their phones in their back pocket and their jeans and stuff like that. But it's yeah. like okay, so you have two functional pockets and there are four pockets on the pair of pants. And yes. it's you know I'm sure it's because the person who makes it doesn't want the pocket line to be so noticeable and blah blah blah. It's all about fashion and looks. I think it's the patriarchy. The patriarchy. (laughs) Is that too? I'm blaming Um, the patriarchy on this one. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned, uh, and and we're also talking about patriarchy now that's been uh, (laughs) brought up, but you mentioned earlier about um, offend, not offend, you you can't offend Doug Stanhope's audience. Right. Um, And that's been, you know, offending people in comedy is obviously a big topic. It's been that for forever but in a in a different way of the last couple of years and Mm -hmm. i was wondering what your thoughts were on that because it's a i think a more complicated subject in some ways than people talk about it but it's also much simpler in some in other ways uh than the way people talk about it so what's your take on uh of being offensive in comedy and people saying things like uh, you can't say anything anymore right. or, uh, you know, like any of those sort of comments. It's like, well, I think it's you You kind of nailed it there because, I mean, this, the very simple way to answer that question is I think it's all about context. So that's an, mm-hmm. and that's a simple way of saying it. But in order to determine context, that's where it gets complicated. Right. Like, uh, I think as long, you know, I try to fall under the. Uh, well, I don't know how exactly to say, but the way I judge it is what was the intention behind what the comedian said. If the, if the intention was to be funny, then that's how it should be judged. If the intention was like, I'm, you know, I was trying to make a joke. Some jokes work, some jokes don't work. So mm-hmm. if it's a joke that uh, some people find offensive, but it's but other people laughed out loud at, then maybe it's not. Uh, funny for the people that were offended by it but you can't say that it wasn't a funny joke that's why my main issue comes when people start saying things like that's not funny or Mm -hmm. you're not funny because it's a in my opinion it's a very uh, entitled way of approaching it where Mm -hmm. you're kind of anointing yourself the ultimate arbiter Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. what is and isn't funny like i have no problem and i even say this in my stand-up and uh, uh, some jokes that I tell where I say I have no problem with somebody telling me that they didn't like one of my jokes or they didn't think I was funny everybody has that right you have that right to not find me funny but the right that you don't have is to tell everybody else that they can't find it funny mm, that's a good point so I have no I have no problem with people that don't find certain kinds of comedy funny or certain jokes funny it's when they try to apply their standards to everybody else in the world that I think right. it starts becoming a, a bigger issue. And, and this is something I was talking about with one of my friends, but isn't that sort of like what the church was doing? You know, like the, like Christians for so long were saying, well, this goes against what is in the Bible, so therefore it's wrong and everyone should go by that. And what everyone who wasn't Christian said was, yeah, but we're not Christian. We don't right. go by that. And so to me, what I'm seeing a lot of now is when um, – and I should 
maybe to help along this discussion get a little bit more specific about the kind of things we're talking about, but just to continue to be a little bit more general, it it seems like that kind of behavior is still going on, where it's, okay, your point of view is X, Y, Z, but that's not everybody's point of view. And so you can't tell everyone else, hey, you can't like this comedian because uh, what they're saying goes against my beliefs. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, because that was another comparison that I was thinking about, even as I was uh, giving you my opinion there, is that that's why we have uh, separation of church and state in this country, where Mm -hmm. you can't just deny rights to people because your holy script says it. That's fine if you have that view, but you can't make it apply to everybody even people that don't share those same uh, religious views as you do. And yeah, and then you can make the same comparison to people that think, I mean, I, I, that's the thing that I try to like when I'm on social media or Facebook or Twitter and I see somebody say, these subjects are never funny. I always have to hold myself back. Cause like, Oh, this is, I got, I can't comment on this cause otherwise I'll be here for two hours <laughs> having a debate with this person. But the way I put it is like, yeah, isn't it, you know, sarcastically of course but yeah aren't those people that's the the most fun people in the world the ones that always start out with certain subjects are not funny those are the people that you always want to party with right <laughs> yeah i mean there is an element of of it that feels like uh the kids at the front of the class like the the bookish nerds at the front of the class or snooty i should say snooty mm-hmm. uh bookish kids at the front of the class are ruining it for the kids in the back of the class. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, we were never saying good things in the back of the room. <laughs> right. <laughs> we were always making jokes at someone's expense. But the thing is, that's true for everyone who does comedy, even the people who want to speak truth to power and hold Dave Chappelle accountable for anything he says in a special. They say things that are offensive to a group of people as well. Like, a lot of those people say things that are kind of they kind of sound bigoted towards christians and it's mm. it's not like if you know it'd be one thing if they were talking about a specific group who were doing some sort of subjugation but they are saying things that are they are painting a broad brush over all christians yeah even the ones who don't think like whatever subjugated thing that they're i guess trying to uh, attack sometimes so it's sort of like well now you're being offensive to people, right? Like, yeah, can't we ha- see the nuance in the situation? I kind of hate uh, saying it like that because that's one of those arguments people use to sort of um, uh, uh, disregard the substance of someone's anger. Um, mm-hmm. I do think there are things that I've heard comics say where it's like, okay, obviously, while they're joking, their perspective is coming from a place of not understanding something you know like yeah you know like for instance just in my i mentioned a minute ago about getting more specific so people understand because i do think one of the big issues with this topic in general is that when somebody says hey this stuff is offensive and people shouldn't do it then you know a, a person hearing that can apply any kind of joke to it and it's maybe not what the person who was speaking was meaning so to give an example like dave chappelle was talking about transsexuals or the trans community 
it did sound like in a, like a couple of specials ago, like his per, his understanding of what being trans was was not accurate enough. It was like maybe outdated, and uh, it it seemed to me like maybe he just didn't understand something. So my thing was. Well, why not just explain it to him? And my other thing was, or like, you know, this is a situation where he just needs to understand this better. And then the other issue was um, he just didn't, aside from not understanding it, it was kind of clear that he wasn't trying to be hateful to that group. But, Mm -hmm. you know, here we are, you know, like obviously they're in a very sensitive spot, the trans community. So somebody not understanding them is going to be a problem for them. So I get that, you know, but there are a lot of people who don't understand what being trans is. So why not, why don't we just explain it to the people who don't get it? Like that's one of those situations to me where, um, it was kind of obvious he didn't get it and he probably, but also he wasn't trying to say he hates those people and they shouldn't (laughs) exist. Yeah, and I see, and I agree with that. I haven't, I honestly haven't seen Chappelle's. I think I saw one from like three or four years ago, and that's about it. I honestly don't watch very much stand up just because I watch so much of it when I'm performing right. that I rarely like go to Netflix or whatever. And, but you know, obviously, the last Chappelle special is being talked about a lot and a lot of the Bill Burr special. I haven't seen either one of them, mm. but I, uh, just from seeing Chappelle in the past or even Burr, you, you know, that they're not coming from a malicious place. Right. Uh, it's another thing if they don't understand, like you just said. And I think the best approach, if that's the case is how about, Hey, approach them and explain to them or help them understand. Cause obviously they're not coming from uh, from a, from a bad place. They're not trying to, uh, uh, you know, vilify uh, trans people or or, or or transsexual or transgender people. They perhaps don't have the understanding, uh, you know, an updated understanding of what it is to be trans. So how about yeah, just explain to them or try to approach them in a civilized way, as opposed to just vilifying them and trying to ruin their careers or whatever that I don't think we get, there's, we don't get any progress from that. If anything, mm-hmm. it just creates more animosity. Now, now there's people that are like, you know, like me that I like, I don't think Chappelle is transphobic or Bill Burr or any of those things. Uh, maybe he told some jokes that were misinformed, but if it, but I, if I had to guess, and again, I haven't seen them, but just from their body of work, I don't think that they come from a, from a, from a, a bad place. They're not trying to be, uh, uh, you know, confrontational for no reason. Right. They actually, you know, so it's better to, to do it that way. I mean, to, to like try to teach people or like see it as a teaching opportunity rather than this whole, well, we got to shut this thing down. This guy can't be a comic. This guy's not funny anymore. You know, boycott this person. Right. And, you know, Chappelle has kind of always been the type to just say outlandish things for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then he also will sort of mix in points sometimes that we've often found poignant. And so maybe it's hard now maybe it's harder nowadays to do both in one special but i think like and i did see his latest special and what i was sort of 
disappointed in was that so much of the material wasn't about um, concepts anymore. It was it was instead about um, when it specifically when it came to transgender. And also, I should should correct myself. I said transsexual a couple minutes ago, and I should have said transgender, uh, mm-hmm. just because that's what he was specifically talking about. Um, but uh, nevertheless, in the new special, when he's talking about uh, the trans community again, it's it's a response to the backlash he got. So to oh. you know to speak to the animosity that you were bringing up that's going on, it's sort of like, well, is this this just seems like reactionary and defensive, which isn't really funny. Okay. It was so much more fun when he was just like cutting up. But um it's not as fun when he is sort of not getting it. And and he's listen, everyone who gets like called out, um whether you're a little kid getting called out by your mom or your teacher or uh, someone who's getting called out the way he is, you you get defensive, you sort of shrink a little bit, and then maybe you even get a little combative if you think that they're a little off base as yeah. to what you did. And that's just not fun. That's the thing that's not fun anymore. And yeah, I, that's... You know, and that's, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the bottom line for me is whether it's funny or not. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. I, uh, like I had, I remember for a long time I, I was kind of you know like my two favorite comics of all time are probably Richard Pryor and, and George Carlin. Yeah, and there were a few uh, specials that I saw from Carlin there and it was i mean i think it was later later part or latter part of his career mm-hmm. where he was saying a lot of stuff that i agreed with but it wasn't making me laugh you know what i mean yeah. it's like i agree with a lot of the points that you're making but i'm not it's not funny enough for for me so that is i mean i think that's definitely a legit criticism that you can make of Chappelle or any comic really if right. if you get too caught up in your you know your own life or what's happening to you like i heard you know the lenny bruce towards the end which is basically reading his lawsuits and all his legal issues and stuff where it's you know i get it you're a comic and you do want to talk about your life but uh, but at the end of the day your your main focus has to be on being funny right so if that if that's the problem like again i can't make a legit uh i don't have a legit opinion about his last special because i haven't seen it Mm -hmm. but if it's just but if it's if that's if that's part of the criticism then i think that's you know that's perfectly legit it's like hey uh, you know it's just that did you it just wasn't funny enough it's still it still has to be comedy because otherwise you're just a public speaker (laughs) right right i mean that is it's the comedy special that's what we want and Mm -hmm. you know when it comes to a lot of this uh, people get offended yeah, I guess there are two types of getting offended. And one thing that I think comics should avoid is the offense because you're a little off base somehow, like what we're talking about of Chappelle not really understanding what being transgender is. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, when people talk about truth in comedy, they're saying it has to be true on some level. And right. uh, when the truth is coming from you, the speaker not understanding something then there's going to be a huge distraction and disconnect for the audience to be able to be in on the joke with you but yeah you know it's 
there are obviously times where someone's making a joke and it's what they're saying is wrong, but it's said within the framework of this is wrong. <laughs> so yeah. it lets the audience in on you knowing that they know that it's wrong and that's part of the reason they're saying it because they're being a little bad and a little naughty and they're saying right. something you're not supposed to say uh, or yep. saying something that uh, – you know, for shock value and they know it's wrong. So they're just like pushing an envelope and that lets people laugh at it. Yeah. I guess that's, that's where the, where that line is where you can easily, cause that's kind of what I do to an extent where I'll tell jokes that are obviously inappropriate, but the, but the intention behind them is, Hey, uh, listen to how stupid this is. Can you believe any kind of an idiot would think this way sort of thing? Yeah. And, and it's not like glorifying either, I don't know, whatever, a racist or misogynist point of view. It's just being like, can you believe that any idiot would actually think this way? Because, you know, I, there's obviously people that do, that are genuinely racist and misogynist. They're idiots. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, it's a satire. You're parodying these people to expose how ridiculous they are right but then there is also the like that's the advantage that i don't have over somebody like stan hope or burr or anybody that's famous is that people don't know me so if i tell a joke that's off color or or that might be a little edgy in whatever kind of way they might actually be like oh this guy is a homophobe this guy's a racist or Mm -hmm. this guy is a pedophile or whatever where like I always thought when I started out, I was like, obviously comics, they're up there, they're telling jokes, everybody realizes this, right? Uh, right but no, some not. audience, no, <laughs> some audience take shit very, very literally. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> and because they don't know me, they're like, ah, oh, well, fuck this guy. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's so, weird. It's it's definitely a thing to try to avoid when it's like an audience. I get um, weirded out when comedians don't seem to get it. Oh yeah, that that's really the worst. I mean, I don't under if you're a comedian and you don't get it, that I don't understand that at all. <laughs> but you're right, you know, audiences uh they're they're taking things at face value. Yeah. And um I heard once in a I wasn't in this class, so I won't name names, mm-hmm. but I there was a a stand-up class that uh like workshop that was going on and um somebody told a joke and the the teacher was like, I don't know that a guy who comes across like you come across and look uh, can get away with that without the audience just thinking, oh, he's racist. Yeah. And, and I, oh, go ahead. Oh, that's a hard thing about comedy is just like you have to sort of step outside of yourself and see yourself the way the audience would see you. You can't just yeah. say like, but this is what my clear intent is. That you're, the audience is experiencing everything, your whole delivery system and your look and your vibe. And you, you have to play towards your vibe and your look. Oh, yeah. I mean, and even even now when I'm, when I'm you know, I, I, I've done stand-up long enough now that I feel comfortable doing the jokes that I do. Uh, even now I'm still aware that I kind of have to set up uh, myself before I can go. Uh, as dark as I want to go, because if I if I hit him with, if I hit the audience with something super dark at the beginning, <laughs> then again it's going to be one of those like, well, fuck this guy, who the hell, what what is he talking about? Right. But if I establish myself 
and I can get like I can basically, for lack of a better way of putting it, get them on my side. We're like, oh, this guy is funny, you know. He like he mm-hmm. he likes to joke around, you know. Which is, again, it's kind of it, it sounds silly for me saying it right now out loud that it wouldn't be obvious that somebody on a comedy stage would be being <laughs> silly, but it's something that you do have to establish with an audience. We're like, oh, this guy's funny, and then then later on I say something off color, and they're like, ah, well, you know, that's just Carlos. You know, that's how he is. He's, he mm-hmm. he tells off color jokes, but he's not really. A racist, misogynist, whatever. Mm-hmm. He's just uh, he's just being uh, silly. That's why I think a lot of these guys that have gotten very huge through uh, through podcasts have an advantage when they do stand up shows. Is people already know their personalities from the podcast, right? They know like their I've, type of humor that they make exactly. So. Like I've toured with uh, Tom Segura, and, and, and Tom's mm-hmm. gotten big with his Netflix specials too. But his but his podcast is huge as well, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people that come out to the shows are big fans of the podcast. So they're hearing him talk and joke around every week, so they know his sense of humor. So when he's because he can say some really off collar stuff too. Like I I love his jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the audience just fucking eats it up because he doesn't. At this point, he doesn't have to spend any time establishing himself because right. everybody that's coming to see him, they know who he is, and he could start with the darkest joke ever, and they're like, "Yeah, that's Tom. That's why you know. That's why we love him." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that can be weird sometimes. Um, not in a Tom Segura scenario, but if you go to another room and some regular in that room, you know, some open mic uh, can say something that's off-putting for you. Because you've never seen them before, but everyone there who were regulars to going to that open mic are laughing, and you're like, "What? What's happening yeah. right now?" I thought that was oh, yeah. crazy. For sure, I, I tell that to uh, uh, newer comics sometimes that you, until you become famous, man, you kind of have to prove yourself at every single show because mm-hmm. you're gonna even at open mics. There's gonna be some people there that have never seen you before. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the other comics have seen you and they know who you are, but whoever's new to that show that night, they don't know. And you start out with something super dark or super, you know, even if it's really absurd or something, they don't they don't understand who you are yet. They're not going to get it until you you kind of establish yourself. So how do you establish yourself um it, so that you can have that end result of getting into the dark material? that you get into like what well, what would be the type of thing you would start with well what i think a big thing that helps now as opposed to when i was first starting out is that i'm a lot more comfortable on stage mm-hmm. i was when i started out i was incredibly nervous like i was I, before i did stand up i was the kind of person that uh not just hated public speaking but because i mean everybody basically hates public speaking but <laughs> i would be like if i knew in advance that we had to do a presentation in front of class like you know in school or whatever i'd be like i'm sick that day i'm not mm-hmm, showing up mm-hmm. i would do anything in my power to avoid having to speak in front of people so when i finally did do stand up i was still i mean i would go to the open mic sometimes and just chicken out i would just like go and never sign up because i was too scared to go up and then sometimes even when i when I went up, I would always bring a piece of paper with me because I was afraid I was going to forget my jokes. And I mean, it took me probably six, seven years before I even just was comfortable enough taking the mic off of the mic stand. Like I would always stand with the mic stand in front of me because it was some sort of like protective blanket or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but now that I'm uh, more comfortable on stage, then it's easier for me to uh, project my personality. Whereas before I was more scripted and more nervous now I can even just go up 
you know, and it can be a simple thing, just like riffing with the audience for the first 20 seconds or 30 seconds of the, of the, of my set mm-hmm. where they kind of, okay, they kind of get that. Okay. There's a guy. Okay. He's kind of, you know, he's kind of chill. He's kind of, you know, he's laid back, you know, like it's, it's a very, very subtle thing, but that helps. So, and also, and you know, the other part of that is also the material that I start up with is not necessarily going to be the harshest stuff I got. I mean, obviously it's got to be funny, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, uh, just in your face. It'll be something more self-deprecating or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, so that's that, a common tactic uh, I've seen of people coming right out and just making a joke about how they look. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a thing too. I mean, I don't. I usually have to comment on the way I look just because people ask me. <laughs> like when I first started out, I was like, I don't want to talk about the fact that I wear a hat and a jacket and. But eventually, so many people were asking me, like, "Oh, you are you Amish? Are you a Jew? What the hell are you?" It's so, <laughs> like, all right, if this is going to be in the back of people's heads the whole mm-hmm. time, I better address it and get it out of the way. So well, that's yeah, another thing. Yeah, it's that thing of uh, avoiding any distractions. Right. Um, you know, I was watching something that Steve Martin was doing. He was the teaching on comedy for masterclass. Oh, masterclass, yeah, I saw that. I really like it. I didn't see the whole thing. I saw the commercial for it. Yeah, I watched. I I saw the whole thing. I really liked it. And one of the things he was talking about was just being kind of deliberate and intentional with how you were presenting yourself on stage. Like even thinking about what you're wearing and just being aware of that and knowing that, so that when you come out, you can utilize that um, with how you deliver your jokes or the type of jokes that you deliver. And because he he was. Uh, I think some people misinterpreted that as him saying doing characters uh, and stand up, which isn't super in vogue right now. He wasn't saying that because all of his examples were like, when I think of Amy Schumer, I think of this. When I think of Chris Rock, I think of that. He was saying this is the their essence on stage. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really good when people can like figure what that is is <laughs> like for yeah. them uh when you can the sooner you can figure that out uh the better for your voice and for your sets what advice would you give for somebody trying to find that for them and how they can do that is it just recording like yourself and watching themselves? tapes you're just like figuring out how to present themselves yeah you know what it's a uh, a great point is the recording is is awesome and i'm not good i'm not that good at it either i mean i I'm basically, I, I, I record a lot, or I used to, I don't do it as much anymore, even though I should, but I used to record a lot of my sets, but I basically just became like a archivist for my shows, because I would never go back to watch them, it was so painful to go back and watch my sets again, mm-hmm. but the few times that I was able to force myself to do it, it's it, it, it gives you a perspective that, other, you know, that you absolutely wouldn't have otherwise, you, you get to see... You know, obviously, how you look to the audience, how you, you know your presentation, just in your clothes or the, or, or or you know what you're wearing or whatever, but also the your mannerisms or right. how you how you uh, if you do act outs, how you're doing act outs, or it'll it, it really gives you a perspective that is that it's invaluable because you can't get it any any other place. It's the hardest part, at least for me has always been just sitting down and watching it because I, I get, I get very uh, self-critical and stuff, but I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's how you grow. Yeah. So 
so I mean, I think that I think if, if if nothing else, that would be basically the best way is try to record like video record. I mean, if you can't do video, then at least do audio, but that's not going to help you as much. If you can do video, then you can really see. I mean, you're never going to be able to separate yourself completely from your own stand up because you're going to be you're still you. Mm-hmm. But that's about as close as you're going to get to being able to separate yourself and being try to uh approach yourself from from the perspective of an audience member and you know sometimes yeah. you see stuff you're like oh, what did i what did i do that or sometimes <laughs> you'll see like oh i did this and it got a bigger laugh so maybe i should keep raising my hand when i ask that question or you know it's like there's a lot of li- very little subtleties yeah that'll it's cultivating uh, that'll you know what it is that you do um and that's natural to you because that's really the best stuff is what's coming natural to that performer and um you know trying to affect something that isn't you isn't great it's just kind of smoothing around the edges i was watching this video um that hasan minhaj did of of patriot act and he was in his uh, office where they work on the on each episode and there's a big wall of note cards that just had like a word or two on them. And um, he was explaining that the cards were words that he's trying to avoid saying, Mm. you know, like if he says like too much or, you know, sure, sure, sure. Or something, just whatever Mm -hmm. sort of phrases or words that he uses to (laughs) his detriment and just explaining his point. And I was, I thought, wow, I, it really goes that deep when you're just watching yourself. It's, it's, um, just about being a little crisper, really. Um, oh yeah, you know, and and also seeing the thing that you liked, and the things that you have a tendency to do that uh, you shouldn't do, or or things that the audience liked. You know, finding all that stuff is really best when watching video. Oh yeah, and I, I mean, I one of the few things that I remember because it's been a long time since I've actually analyzed one of my videos, but I was like. Sometimes I was moving too much. Like I was like, the fact that I'm moving now distracts from the from what I'm saying. Where where you know I'm on when I'm on stage, I don't I'm not aware of any of these things. Mm-hmm. But when I see myself, I'm like, ah, sure enough, the fact that I'm pacing is kind of distracting from the fact from from the words that I'm. I mean, it was distracting me, so I imagine it would have been distracting other people too. And then also, yeah, you catch on to words, and like I've always said that when a comic says the word. When what they say stuff like like words like stuff or things, then you're missing an opportunity for a joke. Because the more oh, specific good. you can get, the better the bit can be. Like if you're mm-hmm. saying something, ah, I was I was late for the meeting because I was doing a bunch of stuff in the afternoon. No, just specifically say what you were doing. I mean, it might not necessarily get a huge laugh, but it might get a little chuckle here that you, yeah, I was late to the meeting because I was buying avocados at the bodega or whatever. Like, and it mm-hmm. also makes the story sound more real. If it is, if you know, uh, regardless of whether it is or not, it just, I think it, it brings people into, into whatever you're talking about a little more. It makes them invest in your story a little bit more, the more specific you can be. Yeah. That's good stuff. We've Please. gotten to the end of the episode. It's so quickly. Um, we could talk forever about comedy, but yeah, um, fun, man. yeah, yeah. Thanks. I appreciated having you on. So now it's the time to create something together, and maybe 
in keeping with what we're talking about, a lot of what we're talking about is communicating in all the various ways that we can communicate with the audience. And maybe there's some sort of challenge that we could come up with for comedians listening. Hmm. Like, I don't, a, you know, the, like something about like how to like what the next step after hearing all this, what their next step could be. Is it uh, go ahead and actually commit to recording your next performance and watching it? Yeah. That, and that, the, that second part would be the biggest thing. It's like, yeah. cause I, again, like I, I, I was going through an old hard drive recently and I like, there's so many sets that I just recorded, put them on the computer and just never watched. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be the biggest part is just, you have to sit down and watch this thing. And, and also I think give yourself some kind of a deadline. You know, some people work better with deadlines. I think I'm that way too. Mm-hmm. If I know I have to get something done by a certain date, then I'll, you know, I'll actually get it done as opposed to just, you know, procrastinating forever. So if you record that set, give yourself, you know, you're going to watch it at least within the week. Yeah. And what is good advice to get over the hump that people feel of not wanting to watch themselves? Cause it's cringeworthy for them to just watch themselves. You know, that's a, that's a good question. I think the, I think it would have to be the, just the deadline, man. It was, mm-hmm. it's, I think what I think I would, I think the the, people, the reason a lot of comics slack, I know it's partially why I slack too is, for a long time is, uh, you get too satisfied with what you're doing. You think what you're doing is good enough, but mm-hmm. the reality though is that uh, a lot of times you just became comfortable. There's more that you can get from these bits. Maybe maybe that's part. Maybe that'll make it. A, easier to watch do bits that you think are done like just do your a material for lack of a better word mm-hmm. and record that and you know because if anything's going to be remotely watchable to you i would think it would be your best stuff so do that start off that way start off it'll be less cringy if you're doing material that you've already tested and, and works but then give that a look and see try to see what you can improve from what you think is already perfect yeah yeah, and I think I don't have too hard of a time watching myself, but when I do hesitate to watch something or, or procrastinate about it, it's very much because I'm worried about seeing how bad I've done or, or how bad <laughs> I am or something like that. And I think, um, and this is maybe uh, something people learn in doing meditation, is just sort of noting that you know when they are watching something and they start being judgmental just sort of noting oh i'm judging myself let me just put that aside and get back to task here do you do a lot of meditation i'm getting more into it um have you found it's helpful i mean it's from for a stand-up perspective well i've i've mostly been focusing on improv since moving to new york it definitely has helped me with that because it it it, it definitely has helped me just pay more attention to what's happening on stage and scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine it would help me feel more comfortable on stage too. Well, I'm not uncomfortable like performing stand up, but I do think owning the space is a good thing to do if you're a stand up because you're up there alone. And uh, the more you can feel the ground under, under your feet and, and feel like, you're you're there uh the better the more you can sort of take control of the stage and be comfortable 
Uh, well, and another thing is like, especially if you're in like a city like New York, if you're in a big market like that, maybe another motivation, motivating factor would be like, if you don't do this, somebody else is. Right. Like it, it, it's easy to slack off when you're in, you know, it's Charlotte or Greenville or you know Greensboro, mm-hmm. uh, but when you're in a market like that where everybody in America that's any good is going there. You know, the time that you're not spending on getting better uh, is time that uh, somebody else is. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's true. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and you know, that's that sort of healthy competition that people can have when trying oh, to pursue sure. comedy. That's uh, when I lived in New York. I mean, even when I lived in Atlanta, uh, just moving there and seeing the quality of comics that they had there made me want to try harder just because I didn't want to go to the open mic and do some weak shit and embarrass myself when all these other guys are doing great stuff and saying, you know, and then New York times 10, you know, you don't want to, you see great comics there and, uh, you, you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of them. Exactly. Well, there it is. It was great having you on the podcast, Carlos. Thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. And I appreciate having him on and him talking to us about all the things we talked about. I, I especially like talking about offensiveness in comedy, but that's a tough topic to tackle because there are so many different perspectives and so many different angles on that topic uh, that it makes it real difficult to really address everything. Ultimately, um, I think there's a lot of confusion because, and that's why I was saying in the interview, that it's good to have specific things that you're talking about. Because people can misinterpret what you're saying if they don't know specifically what kind of situation you're talking about. And so that's we were talking about Dave Chappelle. And you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. I took from his specials that he doesn't get it, that he doesn't understand what it's like to be transgender. However, I totally understand why people might be skeptical of him, you know, now that he's saying that, because transgender people are subjugated so horribly in this country. I get that. And maybe as an outsider looking in, as someone who's not transgender, it's easier for me to miss some of those uh, red flags if there are any in that situation. But to me, it seemed like he doesn't get it and he needs to understand certain things. And that to me is a good starting point. I was reading this great article, and I'm actually going to share it one day in the newsletter, but this brilliant woman was talking about how there are two different kinds of justice systems. There's restitutive and there's retributive, and one is about healing, while the other, the latter, is about punishment and vengeance, and obviously they're both necessary at different times, but when we when we are talking about this from a social justice system sort of standpoint, I don't see as much restitutive justice. I see a bunch of vengeance, but I don't see a lot of healing. And that's unfortunate. And I think a lot of healing could come from explaining things to people, like when they're wrong. Like Chappelle is somebody where we could say, hey, just understand this. And then maybe he would say, oh, I okay, I see, I was wrong, I'm sorry. And then that would lead to healing. I think another thing that I just get uncomfortable with, at least in this discussion, is just the, the whole cancel culture, because so much of it just seems to be more about vengeance. And I also just hate the phrase cancel culture. So like when I first heard people talk about canceling somebody, it seemed like they were being a little silly and immature, 
about something that in some cases was very serious. Like with R. Kelly, that's like that stuff that he's accused of is terrible and is very serious. And I heard people saying like, well, R. Kelly's canceled. Well, do we need to have like these pat phrases for something that's criminal? Like that's he's he should be jailed. Right. Like not canceled. Why are we even talking about canceled in the scope of something so serious? And then you have situations like Shane Gillis getting fired from SNL before he even started the job, mind you. I mean, it reminds me of that movie Friday. Like, how do you get fired on your day off? That's what happened here. But uh, Jim Jeffries was on David Spade talking about that, and he said, ah, it's just cancel culture. And it's like, no, it's not. He called someone a racial slur, and he used that racial slur on more than that one occasion. I mean, that's bad. Firing him is necessary. That's not cancel culture. Like, what are you talking about? It just seems like so many times where there is need for punishment, people want healing. And when there is need for healing, people want punishment. And I just, I just don't know how to, it's like a Rubik's cube that I can't figure out, which I never solved a Rubik's cube. So maybe that's why. Maybe I shouldn't be the one trying to talk about it. But for real, like, I just feel like at the end of the day, regardless, can't we just like show basic common decency? Can we just be good to other people? Can't that be our focus? Maybe we'll get there. Who knows? Okay, soapbox over. (laughs) If you want to know more about Carlos, you can. You can go to carlosvcomedy.com. He also has a podcast. It's called Indecorous Comedy, and it's available on Stitcher. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, which I didn't even know was a thing, and Spotify. And you can follow him and his podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Links in bio for all this. Also, there's a link in the bio for you to subscribe to our newsletter. It is free, it's weekly, and it's designed to make life easier for comics. Please sign up for that. We would very much appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod. Next week's episode is a fun one. We have an accent coach on, and we talk accents. We do accents. Yes, I do accents. And uh, it's a lot of fun, so don't sleep on that episode. We also have a comedy bracket coming out that is Halloween-themed, so be on the lookout. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.